Hi, and welcome to Autism Journey, the podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie, bringing you stories from across the spectrum. Today's guest is Jan Stewart. Jan was born and raised in New York City, but moved to Toronto, Canada when she married her Canadian husband, David. She is a mother to two neurodivergent children, Andrew and Ainsley. Jan is an autism advocate, and she was the former vice chair at CAMH, one of the leading psychiatric hospitals in Canada. She sat on the Parent Advisory Council at the Massachusetts General Hospital's Department of Neuropsychopharmacology. Jan chairs Carrie's Place, the largest autism services organization in Canada, and she writes a monthly column on autism for today's Parent magazine. Jan has written a new book called Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey Raising Children with Mental Illness. So without further ado, here's Jan. I was born and raised in New York City. And I had the foresight to marry a Canadian and moved up to Toronto. And both of us had had wonderful, warm, loving families, wonderful careers, and everything was wonderful. And of course, we naively assumed that having kids, they would follow in the same successful pattern. And I so remember having debates with my husband when I was pregnant with Andrew, our first Should we give him a soother or let him suck his thumb? Should he go to private school or public school first? These seemed monumental at the times, these decisions. And of course, in hindsight, they're totally ludicrous. We had on rose-colored glasses, finding out that we didn't have one, but two children with multiple complex mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders really turned our lives upside down. You know, I had heard the words, but autism. Tourette syndrome, obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD, executive function, anxiety, learning disabilities, those were really never part of my vocabulary before. And so it started us, both children, Andrew and his younger sister, Ainsley, who are grown now, but they started us on a long journey that continues today, a harrowing journey with lots of anguish, despair, and helplessness, but also hope, pride, and awe. And it's their stories that propelled me into advocacy. Jan's son, Andrew, was diagnosed with autism at age nine. Today, he is 36 years old. And although he's come very far, the journey wasn't easy. So my son, Andrew, from almost the time he was born, David and I felt something's not right. His hands and feet move constantly in circular motion. Unlike our friend's babies, he didn't play in his crib. He didn't gurgle. He didn't talk to himself. And when it came to feeding, he had no self-control. My doctor and family and friends always said, don't worry, Andrew will stop eating when he's full. Didn't happen. We actually did an experiment, and I talk often about this when he was six months old. It horrified me. We gave him as many bottles as he wanted, and he downed five straight bottles and would have kept going. By the way, didn't get sick, but we were scared and stopped him. And I remember the next morning, we said, let's control his intake. And I gave him one bottle. He was just as content. So we saw even then at six months old, there were issues with self-regulation. But every time I approached our doctor, he looked at me and said, Jan, calm down. Andrew's going to be fine. Stop being an overly vigilant, triple type A mother from New York City. And unfortunately, this is very common. We were first-time parents. We didn't know. He was the medical expert. And over the next several years, we had increasing concerns with Andrew. There was impulsivity, distractibility, tics, both vocal and motor, anxiety, significant learning disabilities. And then it escalated. He couldn't maintain eye contact. He had terrible difficulty 
anytime there was change or transitions between activities and a lack of abstract thinking. But again, our doctor kept saying, look, he learned to read and write with his peers. He has friends. He's outgoing and cheery. Don't worry. It's just a bit of stress. This will pass. Right after his ninth birthday, he erupted suddenly out of the blue into a two-hour screaming meltdown one morning. He was punching holes in walls. He was ranting, raving, swearing. And he had been so happy the hour before. He didn't know why it happened, and he was miserable. He said, that's not me. Help. And this continued unabated for the next nine months, almost every day, up to two hours. You can imagine how exhausted I was. Within a month, he started engaging in nonstop compulsive rituals. He touched walls repeatedly for hours. He couldn't walk through the door for 20, 30 minutes. And this is OCD as we know now, but his brain told him that unless he did these rituals, his sister would be kidnapped. He would fall through a drain pipe and it would go, he would hurt us. Very distressing thoughts that he knew made no sense, but his brain overrode reason. And of course, the worst thing about OCD is those rituals only temporarily relieve the distress, forcing an endless loop. His behavioral and symptomology were so severe that he was finally fully diagnosed. So autism, Tourette syndrome, OCD, ADHD, and learning disabilities. And we've gone on that journey since then. And it continues today. I would say his major issues today are impulsivity, anxiety, uh, certainly that lack of abstract thinking, inability to read social cues, and his limited cognitive capacity in his case. So that's Andrew. Although she doesn't have an autism diagnosis, Jan's daughter Ainsley had her own complex mental health struggles. Ainsley, 22 months younger, so she's 34, totally different kettle of fish. Much easier as a baby. David and I thought, ah, we can relax. But the cracks began to show once she started, even preschool, she was disruptive, unruly, totally out of control, constantly sent to the principal's office, jumping on desks, running around, couldn't sit still. I was exhausted and drained by that. And this was accompanied by overwhelming anxiety that paralyzed almost all facets of her life, combined with her inability to read her friend's social cues. And it was so sad because she gradually lost every friend she had in the neighborhood. I remember coming home from work one day and finding her balled up in a corner crying, why don't I have any friends? But again, her behavior and symptomology were clear. Now, at first, we didn't know, was she imitating her older brother whom she idolized? But again, she was so different than Andrew. So her diagnoses, Tourette syndrome, lots of tics, ADHD, severe anxiety, and mood and anxiety disorders, learning disabilities. So similar in some conditions, not in the others. And it's been a struggle for her since too, but very proud of her today. She is such a gifted child and youth counselor working in a grade one to three autism classroom. And I'm convinced that it's her own lived experiences combined with her really deep knowledge of Andrew that have made her so valued. The transition from adolescence to adulthood for individuals with profound autism can be a complex and challenging process. Profound autism typically refers to individuals who have significant communication and cognitive impairments, often requiring high levels of support for their daily living needs. Jan details some very helpful steps parents should consider as their children become adults. 
As we know in autism, every individual is unique. And while a lot of people say, and I do believe that differences are not deficits, I change that slightly to differences are not necessarily deficits because there are challenges. And I think we need to be realistic about that. So let's talk first about employment. You know, the statistics on autistic individuals finding and keeping meaningful employment are pretty alarming. Unemployment and even more underemployment than the general population. Yes, governments have resources to help. Now, setting the stage, I said Andrew has a major speech impediment, so he's hard to understand. He is, in his case, limited cognitive capacity, can't maintain eye contact, doesn't understand social cues, and he's totally literal. And there's no question he takes more time of his supervisor than his coworkers. He also stims a lot, and there's anxiety and impulsivity, all kinds of things. But his first employer, was a major retailer where he was a cashier. And I remember thinking, how is he going to handle it? Or aren't customers going to take advantage of him or, you know, go from there? And I snuck in after about two months. And to my delight, there were five customers on his line and three cashiers sat empty. And the reason for that is he knew their names. He knew their kids' names. He made their days happier. He was doing really well there, and then new management came in, and they didn't want an obviously disabled-looking employee on the front line interacting with customers. So without any explanation, they pulled him and told him to sit in the back and stock shelves. Now, I knew what had happened, and this isn't unusual. So, of course, I was irate and took care of it right away, but trust had been broken. And so his next employer really wanted to do the right thing but they were too bureaucratic and they couldn't work in partnership. There's that key word again, partnership with Andrew and us. And so they treated him like a child. They gave him one hour of boring work. He was a clerk in parking uh, for an organization. One hour of boring work every morning and boring work's not good for a brain that has ADHD. And then they said, your reward is you can go watch TV the rest of the day. That certainly didn't make him feel valued or productive. But four and a half years ago, he moved to one of Canada's leading telecom companies, Rogers Communications, uh, where he works in IT, and they have been a role model in inclusion. And that's because they've translated that well-meaning into action. They met with Andrew and me so that they could gain a much greater understanding of his profile, his strengths, how his disabilities really translate into the workforce, which in his case is mostly impulsivity and anxiety. They listen to us. They follow our advice. They brought in Ready, Willing, and Able, which is a wonderful job coach uh, from the autism community and developmental disabilities community, uh, government funded. They customize accommodations. Maybe he has a lot of trouble with change and transition, so they've set his work hours the same every day while other coworkers are on shift. Those are just some examples. It's that keyword partnership that you see again that is the answer. And he wants to stay there till he's 70 and be the best employee, not the best autistic employee. So that gives you a feeling for, for employment. Now, supportive living. Not everyone needs supportive housing in the autism community. There's a whole continuum. In Andrew's case, he was living at home when he was 21, 22, but I knew, he knew, and my husband knew that he couldn't take care of himself over the long term. So I got on the wait list. And across North America, 
those wait lists are multiple years long, sometimes decades long. But I said, I can't sit back. So back to research, I went and I found a lovely private group home, just about 10, 15 minutes drive from where we lived. Now, very, very expensive. And we're fortunate that we were able to afford it. We gave up vacations, you know, lots of different things. And by the way, for those listening, there are many alternatives. You have to be creative. There are organizations. There are families that will take in autistic individuals. You might consider renting an apartment for your child and having a pull-out couch or depending on what you need, even an extra room for a support worker. Just depends what's needed. So he had 10 wonderful years there. Here he is now, you know, just five, six years ago, that he could handle supportive independent living. And he thought so too. Looked around and found a lovely little bright one bedroom, just five minute walk from us. He lives by himself, but David and I take turns going down every morning. We wake him up, we oversee his medications, we prepare all his meals, and we make sure he's tidied up, brushes his teeth, deodorant, you know, all the usual stuff. And off he goes to work for the day. And it's really worked beautifully, and he loves it. Now, the third area to touch on briefly for adulthood is legal guardianship. And again, not all, not autistic individuals need legal guardianship. In Andrew's case, once he became legally an adult, we knew he lacked the capacity for responsible decision-making. We made sure Andrew understood it, embraced it, was comfortable with it, took about nine months for us to go through. You need lots of documentation. And once it was granted, it becomes a major lifelong responsibility because you have to give the courts an accounting every year of receipts and disbursements. And I fully support that because you don't want anyone taking advantage of a vulnerable individual. That's really important. And we make sure now that David and I are also getting older, What's going to happen if we can't continue to do this? Continuity is clear. So just this year, we added Andrew's sister Ainsley as a joint guardian with us for his personal care. She can't handle the financial with her learning disabilities. And an angel who's a family friend and investment executive joined us on the property financial side. That continuity is so key to keep going. We also, by the way, write out letters of wishes every year to in our wills that are attached to trustees, to the guardians, so that they know our wishes. They're not bound by them, but we've chosen people that I think are in, think the same way we do. Finally, and I wish I had started this earlier, important to make a financial plan. The costs, whether it's medications not fully covered by insurance, whether it is private therapy, supportive housing, the list goes on, food, clothing, transportation. You've got to plan for the future and be conservative. So if you have a younger child, do it now. You don't know what your child's capabilities and needs are going to be later. I can guarantee you that, but you can revisit it and update it as you gain more clarity. And for us, we revisit it every year. Work with a financial planner if you're not adept really makes a difference between having a more secure and an uncertain future. So that, those are some of the major themes that we've come across and that I've learned about in adulthood. 
As many parents know, navigating the system for autism supports and services can be complex and overwhelming, but there are resources and strategies to help individuals with autism and their families access the supports they need. It's a harrowing journey, uh, and navigating both in Canada and the U.S., our overly complex healthcare system for starters can crush anyone's spirit, as far as I'm concerned, on top of which there's a long wait lists, scarcity of resources, scarcity of psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, social workers, it goes on. So the first thing that I did is I learned to trust my gut as a parent. After our doctor's continual discounting of the concerns, once I was validated, my concerns were validated, I said, I know my child best. And I think most parents do. And if you think something's really wrong, it generally is. So that's number one. Number two, I embraced the power of research. It's so important, not only in helping you find the right resources. And so I read everything I could about both kids, conditions, disorders, anything I could. I watched videos. And David and I also started attending support groups. We went to autism support groups. These are parent support groups, ADHD support groups, um, Tourette support groups. And these were so reaffirming and still are to this day, because this is the community that we form of understanding and empathy. And very helpful, by the way, to talk to caregivers and parents who have children older than yours. So you can say, gee, what did you do when it was time for your child to attend high school or What did you do in terms of legal guardianship? Or what did you do later in terms of entering the workforce? So we're always helping one another. I think the next thing I did was I embraced both medications and therapy. Now, for my children, they've been lifesavers, both of them. And they're great partners that work together. There are a number of children that don't need both. They might benefit from therapy alone or medications alone. Whatever works for your child, I'm in favor of. And I know parents can be wary of medications and side effects or labeling. There's no question that those are things you have to talk about and be aware of. So it's individual decision. But for us, it's been clear that the benefits have far outweighed the risks. And believe me, there have been severe side effects. And we've had lots of trial and error and still do to this day. Similarly, with therapy, I learned pretty quickly to find specialists You know, for OCD, it's exposure and response prevention. For autism, for us, it's ABA and social skills training. I know ABA can be controversial. If you have a qualified behavior analyst, I think ABA is fine. So there are different therapies you have to look at, and it can seem never-ending. Now, along this journey, I think the most overarching insight I learned is to insist, and I mean insist, on having partnerships with your healthcare, your children's healthcare providers, educators, whoever is working with them, and later employers. You want everyone on the same page. It's absolutely critical. Jan shares how parents should reset the expectations for their lives. One of the key components in Hold On Tight is how to turn fear into hope and perseverance. Autism and related conditions. There's no question they throw every family member's life into disarray. There's going to be fear, anger, and resentment. And to this day, there are days I just want to crawl into a hole and disappear. I think we all do, but that's okay. The key to being able to move forward, I think, and to turn that fear into hope and perseverance is to not only accept, but try to embrace 
the fact that your life is not going to be as planned for or hoped for in some ways. You have to understand the reality of your life because it's the rest of your life. I was speaking to a group of um, parents, and they call themselves forever parents because they're parents of both autistic and developmentally disabled children, some of whom are small, some of whom are grown. And it's true. I mean, every parent is a forever parent, but in our case, it's nonstop. You don't get to rest and say, my kid is off for a week or I don't have to talk to them today. It just doesn't work like that. This involves recalibrating your expectation of support from certain family members and friends who don't understand, who have a lack of awareness, fear, misunderstandings, and stigma. And family, you know, you can't shed your family. So you have to learn with family members who are critical or judgmental or the worst, in my case, who think they have all the answers. You have to learn how to limit your engagement with them. And with friends, boy, I've learned the hard way, extremely upsetting. Shed them if they're not truly supportive. I don't have the energy and emotional reserves to this day to devote to anyone who isn't really there for me and for us. But again, that silver lining is those other parents of the neurodivergent children that form that wonderful community. Balancing a career in motherhood isn't easy. For Jan, it was her saving grace. My career was my lifesaver. Uh, if I'm very honest about it. One, one of the key insights that I talk about in Hold On Tide is taking care of yourself. Because obviously, if, if you're not healthy, you can't take care of your kids. But whether it's reaching out for the support you need, keeping humor in your life and not taking it too seriously all the time, carving out critical time for your support away from your partner, away from your kids so you don't burn out, so you can refuel. I had a high-pressure career. I could not have done it without David because I traveled internationally a lot. And it was a pressure cooker. But for me, it separated me from the issues at home. It gave me perspective. It let me regain my own identity. Everyone in the office knew that if either of my kids needed me, it wouldn't matter which CEO or board I was talking to, no matter how senior or how junior, I was to be interrupted. And there were times when schools called or whoever called that I just got up and left. Jan shares what prompted her to write Hold On Tight. When I look back to the journey I've described, as I learned lessons through trial and error along the way, and as I said through the advocacy at the beginning, so many parents reaching out, and I remember being in their position. As I thought about giving back through a book, and I talked to a lot of not only authors, but psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health and neurodiversity organizations and agencies, they all told me there has been very little written from a parental perspective about raising children who have severe neurodevelopmental disorders and mental illness. And my kids have both. And so that's what propelled me to write the book, to tell the reality, but also to celebrate success and gift readers with the insights that we're talking about. And I'm thrilled with the reception uh, to the book. It's won the Mom's Choice Award, uh, which I'm thrilled about. It rose to number one in autism on Amazon. I'm speaking to so many corporations, mental health and neurodevelopmental agencies and organizations, autism organizations, especially because that's my love, <laughs> schools, it, the list just goes on. And if I can spread that message of perseverance and hope, that's what I want to do.
When you're in crisis, there's no way you have time for anything but minute to minute. There were many days in Andrews when he was going through those horrific, frightening meltdowns or those bizarre rituals. When I tell you that he got down on the subway floor and gnawed it repeatedly, that he rubbed his head against car tires, I thought I was in the twilight zone. You can't advocate or do anything then. You just try to get through the next five minutes, much less the day. But once that lifts, and it does lift, that's when it's so meaningful to me to reach out. And if we can all hold on to each other and help each other, and that's why I named the book Hold On Tight, it is an endless roller coaster. And we, unfortunately, I'm always on guard. But I've learned through the years when things are good, try to relax a little and enjoy them because they're not going to last. But equally, when you dive down into crisis, Remember that they too won't last and lift yourself out of it. Reach out for support yourself, whether it's to a psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, whatever works for you. I've always find, found that really helpful. But for me, even more helpful have been other parents of neurodivergent and autistic kids. Forming that community, so reaffirming, it's so understanding and really helpful forgive yourself for your mistakes. I still make many mistakes. One of the key insights in the book, and it's not only about diagnoses, but talk openly with your children. This is a mantra I live by. Your child is frightened. They know they're causing havoc and what's going on, you know, and it's upsetting and there might be shame. You've got to absolutely sit down with them talk openly with them, explain what's happening, validate their fears. It goes such a long way to do that. It pains me, it upsets me when parents hide or avoid information. But I strongly believe if you don't tell your children their diagnoses, that they're taking this medication and for what, and by the way, then they can tell you side effects and how they're feeling, but that's a side issue. You can educate them involve them. And as they grow older, this empowers them to increasingly at whatever functioning level they can become involved in their own treatment and self-advocacy. It's absolutely wonderful to see when that happens. When I talk about hope and perseverance, I add empowerment to that. You are your children's champion and your children's advocate. Don't sit back. If something, a service or support is insufficient or isn't there, and you have the energy and reserves, create it. Steer your families, your child's, your own ship as much as you can, rather than letting others steer it for you. I want you to persevere through the most difficult of times, have hope, and as I say, hold on tight. Thank you, Jan, for taking the time to chat with me. If you'd like to follow Jan on Instagram, you can follow her at Jan Stewart Author, no spaces. If you'd like to purchase Jan's book, Hold On Tight, you can find it on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. I will provide a link in the show notes at www.autismjourney.org forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to share your story and be featured on Autism Journey, the podcast, you can send an email to autismjourneypodcast at autismjourney.org. Don't forget to subscribe to Autism Journey, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
And it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening.